0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Go Native, the business of native plants. I am Mitzi Sosa, your host. On today's episode, we are talking to Steve Beeman of BMAT's Floating Wetlands. Steve has worked with native Florida plant communities for 39 As a biologist with early State of Florida environmental agencies, he studied and regulated impacts to coastal wetland habitats in East Central Florida. Then, in 1978, he founded EcoShorts Inc., a company that built and planted over 2,500 acres of native wetlands in upland forest. Steve's also a founding member of the Florida Association of Environmental Professionals and the Association of Florida Native Nurseries. He is here today to tell us the ins and outs of those stories and what he's up to today. All right, so we're going to get right to it. So I like for us to start with a quick, simple introduction. Tell us about yourself, who you are, and what you do.
1: Okay. I'm Steve Beeman. Um, I started a company in 1974 called Eco Shores. I went to college in Hawaii. I got a job working for the state for four years. Then I started this company called Eco Shores and we planted native shorelines. When my son Forrest got out of college with his degree in uh, environmental horticulture from Texas A&M, we started Beeman's Nursery in 2000. And in 2009, we started this company for planting and growing floating wetlands for water treatment. Um, Mm -hmm. In the last several years, Forrest has now taken over the nursery. He owns Uh Bema's Nursery, and I'm running uh, BMATS, the floating wetland company. So he produces all the plants for me for the BMATS, and uh, we put them out and maintain them. And most of our clients are... Municipalities, counties, uh, although there are some private development companies and some homeowners associations that use them for water cleanup as well. Um, so that's pretty much where we are. We're um, we're constantly tweaking our system. When we first started the nursery uh, 20 years ago, is that we want to have floating wetlands growing in ponds to take up nutrients and keeps the ponds clean. Um, without worrying about the water levels in the pond. That was our issue when planting shorelines, is that water levels made our work uncertain. We didn't know whether the um, you know we would have a drought or whether we'd have a flood and it impacted the health of the plants growing on the shoreline. We didn't realize until we started floating wetlands just how good they were at actually taking up nutrients. Because it's like growing hydroponically, except that you're not if you're growing tomatoes hydroponically, you add nutrients to your to your mixture. When you're growing hydroponically in a, in a stormwater pond, the nutrients are there and they're actually your target. The idea is to harvest those nutrients out of the water so that you don't uh, have a, a food source for algae and hydrilla, duckweed, and other nuisance plants. And every stormwater pond in the state eventually ends up in a creek or a stream or a ditch that goes to, ultimately, to a big lake or to the estuary. The right. bottom so line is we need to keep as much of that nutrient load out of the estuary. And the way we do that is by reducing it at its source, which is stormwater and treated wastewater.
0: And that has connections to the algae blooms.
1: Oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 100%. That, that's, that's the causative factor. Nitrogen and phosphorus primarily, but there are other constituents but primarily those two and we throw nitrogen on our agricultural fields we use phosphate fertilizers um and those two are the main culprits uh yard you know we, we spray our yards to get the grass green and uh landscapes golf courses all that contributes in some way
0: could you tell me a little bit more about the nursery and um the BMATS business?
1: We're in New Smyrna Beach. Um, it's a 20-acre nursery um, that forest runs, BMATS nursery, and we grow almost exclusively native plants. We grow some plants that are not natives that we have uh, you know, people a demand for. Um, in floating wetlands, everything we use pretty much is, is a native plant, and when we sell these to places like the Carolinas or Iowa or wherever, we encourage them to use their native plants for the, for the uh, nutrient uptake in their area. We just did a bunch in Virginia uh, last Mm -hmm. summer where we uh, used Virginia plant stock, brought it to Florida, grew it out in our nursery and took it back to Virginia to plant it. And those are doing well. Those, those wetlands are doing well.
0: And just to, Recap Steve is running his Steve B business. His son is in charge of running B Man's Nursery, and B Man's Nursery makes the plants that eventually go into Steve's B But it's incredibly cool to have, you know, the different native plants of the different places that people are getting them from be grown specifically for them. But it does sound a little bit complicated.
1: Yeah, it would be better if it were grown there. Um, we did a project also on the other side of the Chesapeake Bay uh, in Delaware, where the plant is a salt, um, a salty area, a mar- salt marsh area. And those plants were grown at a nursery across the bay in uh, New Jersey. Sorry about that. And um, so they imported the plant. They brought the plants over. We brought the islands up and planted them with those plants from the local uh, source
0: yeah of course it's it's amazing so Steve could you take us back and tell me about the beginning of everything tell me about eco shores and you know what got you into the native plant industry was this something that you were introduced to in college or or you just always had a passion for natives
1: actually no I uh, my master's degrees uh, research was on hammerhead sharks it had oh, nothing wow. to do with plants. Uh, when I moved to Florida, I actually moved here hoping to um, have an interview at Moat Marine Lab in Sarasota working on sharks. But there was a recession going on when I moved here in 1974. So I took a job working for the state as a biologist, what became the, the agency that eventually became DEP, and um, as a field biologist. And I was moved to Volusia County and Seminole Counties. And so I worked for the state for four years and my main function was biological assessments and uh, permitting for any, any uh, damage to wetlands. And that was brand new at the time. So it was, it was like the, the laws had just been changed from um, it's okay to go out and dredge and fill wetlands to now it's not okay, you gotta get a permit. So it was kind of like the wild west back then but people wanted to put seawalls up all along the estuaries. And um, I kept trying to tell them that if they just planted native shoreline intertidal plants, there were two or three major advantages. The number one major advantage is you don't need a permit from us, from this agency. You just do it. Number two Mm -hmm. advantage is it's a um, sloping shoreline So, it attenuates wave energy. It doesn't reflect it. And the third thing is that you created a nursery for fish and other marine animals. So, you're going to have a productive shoreline that, you know, fishing next to is going to be a lot more fun. And I had people say, well, that sounds fine. Who can, who does this? You know, who can I call to do this? And I couldn't find anybody. So I said, well, I'm going to just quit and do it. So I took the leap and started doing vegetated shorelines. Uh, the first one I ever did was uh, in Daytona Beach for a banker right across from the chart house. And uh, then it went from there. We started planting estuarine shorelines, and that branched out into freshwater lake shorelines. And then that, we, we were we caught the attention of the golf course industry, for um, doing not only wetlands, but also uplands uh, that were impacted by development for the golf course. They didn't want to grow grass on them. They didn't want to uh, fertilize them. They, don't, they just wanted a place out of play that kind of blended into the, to the natural environment. And to their credit, they, they put a lot of effort into it. They started a program called the Audubon Sanctuary, Cooperative Sanctuary Program in the golf industry. And so we, we then got into that. Field in a big way. Uh, we started doing acres and acres of, of native habitats. Every time a golf course was built, we got to do you know native habitats. It was their cheapest alternative because they didn't have to maintain it after it was done. It was just finished, and we planted plants that didn't need any care. You just you left them alone. They became wildlife habitat right in the middle of the golf course, and so that worked well until about 2006, 2007. When the economy crashed and all the golf courses that were being built stopped, um, all of the golf courses that were on the drawing board came off the drawing board and we lost about 80% of our business in those two years. Fortunately for us, we had a huge mitigation project that came on board uh, over in the villages, uh, which was a 600 acre wetland project. And that kept us afloat. And, um, we also started then working on the floating wetlands in a big way. And then we started doing that. We got the patent for our system in 2009. And then we started sl- slowly building that up and doing a lot of research because, frankly, we didn't know at all what these things were capable of. And so we got involved with Clemson University. We got involved with Dr. Juan Lista at UCF and um, Harvey Harper, Dr. Harper at um um, his company in Orlando doing, he was doing consulting work for Patrick Air Force Base so we, we set these studies all going at the same time and through that the state of Florida DEP adopted um, best management practices for stormwater and they actually listed us in there as one of the uh, approved BMPs for stormwater development of course back then it didn't matter because nobody was building anything uh, there was no development going on. And most of our early clients were cities who had to meet TMDL requirements laid down by EPA. So we started doing that. And now, mm-hmm. actually, there is some development happening. And we have a couple of decent-sized projects that are going in that are actually privately funded. But still, uh, local governments can continue to be a big part of our of our uh, project.
0: Well, it sounds like you really set the stage for... A couple of things there. Is there anything that you wish you had known before you embarked on what this journey has become?
1: Well, I've been blessed as I've moved through this process from the very beginning. From the very beginning, I moved to Florida expecting to work for sharks. I got a job working for the state in plants. I saw an opportunity on shorelines. I just took it and I had no idea what I was doing. But it all fell into place, and then when when a big golf course company wanted to buy that company, uh, I saw it as an opportunity to expand. But that turned out to be a bad choice.
0: And that was Eco Shores, the the company that you sold.
1: And they they eventually folded, and um, so Forrest and I started this nursery, and then we kind of were dabbling with floating wetlands for years. I mean, twenty years before we actually got the patent. And um, so each step of this has just worked out. And it's like Edison's statement that he figured out a whole bunch of ways to make a light bulb that didn't work. (laughs) That's sort of what we did. We've learned by our mistakes. That's the one thing I guess if you're gonna tell people in the nursery business, don't be afraid of making mistakes. Don't be afraid of trying stuff. That's how you learn. We learned a lot of hard lessons but we, we recognize them for the lessons that they were. For example, we had crop insurance at one time. Um, Hurricane Francis came through Daytona Beach in 2004 and dumped just acres of water on our nursery, flooded us out completely. And we lost about a half million dollars worth of plants, put in a claim to our uh, crop insurance company and they paid us $50,000. We learned right then that crop insurance is not worth having, so we don't have it anymore. But it's a lesson that we learned, and we just said, okay, fine. We picked up. We had some plants that didn't get destroyed. We started over. And uh, same thing after the, um, the crash in 2007. We knew, I mean, we had literally a million plants here. We were, we were planning on a big year when that thing happened. And we basically had to pare down to uh, Forrest and me. And my daughter Colette, who was running the office at the time, and a secretary, and we did everything. We just we didn't we didn't put anything else in the ground. Our goal was just to, to sell what we had, and so we advertised. We loaded trucks. We drove trucks, and we just made it through those two or three years until the the big uh, reclamation project happened at the villages. I mean, it's you know they say what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and that's pretty much true.
0: Those are definitely wise words right there. Do you think that there is a common mistake that most new native plant growers make at the beginning? What's something that they should avoid?
1: Um, No. I, I Well, I think as far as native nurseries go, I was, I was part of the very first native association. We met over green images in David Dryley's garage at the time. It's easy for native plant people to become Tunnel vision and say that the only good plant is a native plant, and that if you don't grow and sell and plant native plants, you're uh, making a big mistake. Well, that's true to some degree. However, you have to be prepared to give your clients what they want, and you have to be prepared to take advantage of plants that are otherwise innocuous and otherwise they don't spread by seed, so they don't uh, naturalize in Florida, but they're good plants. Um, to do a specific job that you can't do with a native plant.
0: Some really, really great points that uh, I feel like they're very much to the work that you do. Very niche, like you say. Um, (laughs) So what are some of the first things that someone who is a younger person that's trying to get into the plant grower business should ask herself or himself before starting? Should they be asking themselves like, How hard they're willing to work, or how many years they have to wait till they turn profit, or or anything like that?
1: Well, growing plants is satisfying, but it's expensive. First of all, you have to have real estate, you have to have property, you have to invest in infrastructure, you have to have a reliable way to grow the plants you want to sell without other weeds infecting them and turning them into useless. (laughs) <laughs> green stuff um, so all that is all that is expensive you have to be careful that you first of all you have to actually start with something and that something normally is a piece of property piece of land it could be an acre it could be a thousand acres whatever it is you have to start with that so if you don't have that you, you shouldn't start inertia the second now you need real estate and you need to you need to spend the money and do do it right to get your irrigation system set up. First of all, test the water that you're going to use for irrigation. We found out uh, almost a year after we were here and operating that our plants were not growing the way we thought they should. We had the water tested and the pH here was off the charts high. And we found out that in order to get the pH down to a point If the plants could then take up the the fertilizer, the nitrogen and phosphorus in the fertilizer we're putting on them, we had to inject sulfuric acid into the water. That's a very expensive proposition. So we now have a big acid injection system for this nursery, so we can use less fertilizer. And that's always been our goal. I mean, before we were throwing fertilizer out and it did not go to our plants. It went into our little storage pond here and grew algae. and so. Um, that's that's primary importance. How good is your water? Uh, can it be used just the way it is for um, irrigation? Um, can you collect rainwater in a cistern and use that? But I'll tell you right now that the very best water for plants to grow in is rainfall. And so, during the rainy season, just take advantage of it because it's going to be great. That's the best water ever. But when you don't have rainy season, either figure out a way to put in a pond and store that rainwater and then use it for irrigation, or um, in, in which case you'll have to line it. You have to line it with plastic or concrete, because otherwise you're going to get all the other stuff through the sidewalk. The other thing is to, uh, once, you, once you know how to grow plants, establish a market. In fact, you should establish the market first. Go out there and ask people, what do you need? What do you want? from talking to other nurseries and to other landscapers and to contractors. What is in high demand and what do people have a hard time getting? And then figure out why do they have a hard time getting it? You know, is it because nobody's growing it? Is it because it's a pain to grow? And so if that's the case, can you figure out a way to grow it effectively and sell it for a reasonable price? And that's the bottom line because you have people all the time who say, well, I put, you know, Five dollars into growing this plant, so I have to sell it for eight or nine. Well, the market is at six. Can you do it for six? You got to cut down your cost of growing it down to three. So that's that's really important that you look at all those production costs. you, You know what you're doing as far as soil and fertilizer and people.
0: Those are amazing points that I think a lot of people are going to learn a lot from. Over the years, have you seen any changes that would make it easier or harder to become a native plant grower? Well,
1: it's just like in farming. There are a whole lot of big organizations that have taken over the bulk of plant growing. Um, Same thing in farming, where you have these multinational corporations growing all of our corn and wheat and rice instead of the family farmer. So I think that... um, that in and of itself is is something you have to overcome because they can do it. They're doing it on a um, scale that makes it really really hard to compete price wise. So you have to compete availability of of hard to find plants, or a niche of plants that they're not doing because it's not worth their time, um, or something like that. You have to you have to think about where your place is in the big picture, and don't try to compete with the huge growers because you can't. I would, I would caution against looking for and taking money from investors, because then you owe them. Mm-hmm. Caution against taking money from banks for mortgages unless you're sure that the return is worth it. You know, can you make enough money off of growing those plants that the uh, you can pay off the mortgage? I know, I listened to people tell me things and I thought, well, that's good advice and I didn't follow it. <laughs> so I still made the mistakes and and, and anybody will. You know, the, the the thing is to not be afraid of mistakes. Right. Right. You know, understand them for what they are. They're lessons of how not to make a light bulb.
0: And that's the big idea. So basically, mistakes are a good thing to make when you're starting and they are great ways to learn what to do, what not to do, what works and what doesn't. Okay, Steve, so one of the last questions that I have for you is a question that I've been asking all of the people that that we've had the pleasure of interviewing. And in the spirit of talking about learning and teaching and if you could design a native plant grower program what would you make sure it included
1: um the very first thing is a real good working knowledge of the native plants in your area when i when i moved to tallahassee and was given this job they took us out with biologists into the field for three days and basically showed us every plant on the state's um, wetland indicator list and told us how to identify them and all that. What saved me, I mean, it's three days, three days to learn all this. What saved me was I took a camera and every I took a picture of everything they said And I took notes, and I had a list of what they were showing us in order. So I took notes, and then I went home at night and studied it and put it together and made a little booklet, here's the plant. And so when I went out in the field later, I could refer back to my notes and say, you know, yeah, this is this, and and that's how I learned it. But it would have been much better to have a semester or a year-long class that teaches you – First of all, start with the plants from the uplands and then the plants from the mid areas and then the plants from the wetlands. And in each case, there are subcategories like in the wetlands, there are some plants that are underwater all the time. Some plants that are emergent, but still need to be in the water all the time. Other plants that are emergent, but go dry every once in a while and and you work your way up. Once you have a real good working knowledge of how all that works, now, when you start your company, you can say, somebody says, well, I've got this place over on the beach side. It's not on the dunes, but it's behind the dunes, so it gets salt spray, but it's kind of in a little low spot, so it does get rain and it soaks in there, but it's salty. What do you got that works? You'll know. You have to know those environments, and that's what makes the difference. That's what people come for. They come for your plants, but they also come for your knowledge of how to use those plants. And and once you plant them or they plant them, they're not going to just die because you put them in the wrong place.
0: <laughs> and and nobody, nobody wants dead plants. All right, and that is what we have for you today. Thank you so much, Steve. You can find more on Steve and his floating wetlands at bmats.com. Again, thank you so much, Steve. We'll see you around next time. All right.
1: See you later. Bye.
0: And as always, stay tuned for more podcasts coming your way. You can visit our website at nativeplanthort.org. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time.